You are listening to Been There, Done That, an original podcast series by the Quantum Economic Development Consortium, or QEDC, featuring leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. I'm Jonathan Felbinger, Deputy Director of QEDC. Our guest today is Christopher Markey, CEO and Chief Technologist of Markey Microwave. Since taking on the role of CEO in 2007, he has led the innovation and development of numerous commercially successful products, including mixers, multipliers, balance, amplifiers, switches, filters, power combiners and dividers, and couplers, and has grown the company. Chris, it's great to sit down with you today. Thanks for joining us at QEDC for a bit of conversation about Marky Microwave and its role in the quantum industry. Thanks for having me, John. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about Marky Microwave? Beyond the name, what's the nature of the business? When did you get started and when did you take the reins? So Marky started in 1991, formed by my mom and dad. Uh, my dad had been in the industry for I think about 20 years to that point and had already made a name for himself as a bit of a legend in, in the mixer area. And so he was out of a job. It was the post-Cold War era and decided that it was time to stop making other companies rich <laughs> because many people continue to this day to sell his stuff. But he decided that he would do it in-house and my mom and dad took a huge leap of faith and I guess the rest was history. It took a few short years, I think, to become established, but it wasn't long before they were doing okay for themselves. So the company started as a mixer company specifically. And then around 2004, 2005, I actually, bit of a backup here, I became an electrical engineer. I went to college at Duke and graduated in 2002. Then I went to UC San Diego to get my PhD in photonics. I wasn't particularly interested in microwave or RF technology at the time. I definitely was not interested in circuits. I was more of a fields and waves physics kind of person, um, more interested in hardware and I guess physical phenomenon. And so I went to get a PhD at UCSD. Somewhere around 2004, 2005, I started to become much more interested in Markey because I was learning about what it took to design technology, design things, do the science, do the engineering side of things, and talk to my dad nearly daily about my projects and the experiments I was running in the lab. And he was helping me actually, he was providing me hardware at the time. And it was common where I would call him up and say, hey, I need a power divider, something like that. And he would send it to me. And I'd say, I don't understand. That's not even on your website. Why aren't you selling these? And you say, oh, I'm a mixer guy. I don't really care about selling power dividers. So I always thought that was a strange comment because I was like, if I need this, surely other people need this too, right? And so around 2006, he and I were talking and I was explaining this to him saying, I think we could do other things. We can branch out beyond mixers. And so he said, okay, go ahead. I'm not going to get in your way. You come here and, and we'll do that. So that's what we did. I primarily focused on expanding the product line outside of our core mixer area and was very much focused on really two things at the time. First, I was focused on portfolio expansion, just be selling more things to diversify what we did. 
but also I was very concerned about the long-term success and viability of our technology because the company I walked into, and this will sound crazy to, to the RF people who listen to this, but we did not own a single VNA. We did not own any design software at all. No circuit design software, certainly no FEM modeling capability, none of that. We did not do any semiconductor products at all, integrated circuit products. We would use semiconductors, obviously, but we did not design ICs, that's for sure. And we were competing with companies that had all of those things. <laughs> and I knew this because most people coming out of an engineering PhD process are going to be indoctrinated with the idea that CMOS takes over the world. And if you're going to do electrical engineering products, you will be doing it on silicon. And that's of course not entirely true, but it's largely true. Most people doing electrical engineering work in silicon. And thankfully, RF and microwave is often not solely a silicon technology. And that's what we do today, which is more gallium arsenide type products. But the point being that I came in 2007 and worked with my dad to expand. And, and ever since then, I think we've increased many fold. We're up to about 160 people or so. I think when I started, we had about high 30s, low 40s. So it's been a ride. That's for sure. And what do you like most about expanding the business lines and leading a growing tech company? Actually, so that that comes down to the fundamental reason why I became interested in working with my dad in the first place, which is that my dad is a gearhead. He is an in-the-trenches engineer. He is not a bean-counting business guy. He solves problems for his real customers. And I always thought that was a wonderful thing when I was in grad school because in grad school, when you do research and you chase a lot of DARPA funding or you chase a lot of whatever funding you can do to scrape by to get a PhD, you basically become a PowerPoint engineer. And you make a lot of promises and write lots of proposals. And to this day, I've never been a successful proposal writer. But I love the idea of, and to this day, it's the thing that gets me out of bed. I love the idea of, of hearing about a problem that a customer has and then initially thinking that's impossible and then coming in the next day and knowing how to do it. And that's easily the most rewarding thing, I think, if, if you're a, uh, an engineer or an innovator, which is to find a pain point that somebody has, apply your knowledge of science, math, whatever. And, and then if you're a business person, add value that turns into economic value. Because that's the business side that my dad taught me about too, which is we don't solve problems in a vacuum here. We solve problems to make money. Because if you do that, then you can keep solving problems to make more money and you can, you, you set the flywheel in motion, so to speak. Well, for a company working in RF components, there are certainly well-established markets like radar, electronic warfare, 5G most recently. As a company that's been in decades for over three decades, how do you decide to expand into emerging markets and particularly those that are just taking shape like quantum? We don't actually. This is something that I brought up in, in QEDC before. I'll, I'll keep beating the drum. I don't think that I have much sway here, but certainly from our business model point of view, we look at emerging markets as lottery tickets. So we are very careful about opportunity cost. And, and this is a, a disadvantage in a, in a sense, right? When you're an established company and you're, you have some incumbency, 
you're generally going to listen sometimes too much to your core customer base. That's a, a well-known problem in the innovation arena. The, the, if you are familiar with technologies and the history of technology, if you listen to your customers too much, they'll actually railroad you into a corner that you can't back out of. And some new player will come in, disrupt, and have significant technical or, or strategic advantages that you won't be able to pivot out of. So you could definitely argue that would be the case in quantum, I think, where let's take an example, quantum control qubits or something like that. Probably somebody's just going to design some CMOS chip that can control thousands of qubits simultaneously. And the way that it's done today with IQ mixers or whatever, that will become a thing of the past. And there'll be all sorts of DSP and probably some AI scattered in there. So NVIDIA will probably do it. And if, if quantum takes off in the let's say exponential way that everybody hopes, there will be people who specialize in those kind of components, I think. They, they probably won't be components. They'll probably be like actual systems on chips. I guess getting back to the question, how do we look at it? We look at it as do people in the quantum space or any space really, do they have a problem we know how to solve that we can add value? It is that simple. Now, how you answer the question is very complicated because you may say it's worth solving a problem just because even if I don't, let's say, profit from the initial solution of it, it builds upon itself in a way where in the future, I'll have access to a new opportunity that will be lucrative. But that's a tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing to decide what to work on. That is a bold vision for the future you've shared of uh, extremely high level of integration supporting massively scaled quantum systems. But in the medium term, do you see a growing demand from customers in particular developing quantum technologies? Yes, we do. And gosh, it was maybe two weeks ago, I looked at the previous week's orders and on all those, there was a big line on them, big ticket line on them from a quantum company. And I looked at the sales guy and I go, huh, did we know that was coming? He's like, no. <laughs> so what I would say is that our visibility into the players is not strong. And I think that what we've seen so far is there's a hesitancy, especially the biggest players to share too much for obvious reasons, right? The stakes are high. They're investing incalculable sums of money and the risks are high. So, and I think that things are changing so fast. The, the quantum sciences are, are developing so quickly that I think that they don't always know what they want because in two months from now, there could be another breakthrough. But given all that, that just paints another picture, right? Of like a very uncertain area, moving very fast, very dynamic. There'll be some great wins, but then there'll be like dry spells. And that's what I, we've also seen. So we'll be interacting with a company let's say offering them a, a solution to a problem that they tell us they have. We'll say, okay, here's how we could do it. And we'll make some new fancy component for you. And then they say, okay, great. We'll get back to you. And then you don't hear from them for six months. So one cannot form a company around that business model. <laughs> so I think it's going to be a lot more of the same for a while as people get their bearings. I've been advocating for a long time about standards, especially when it comes to, let's say, cryo components, that if the market wants cryo certified components, then everybody has to come together to actually do that. 
and make certifications of some kind and standards. I think there's a universal desire for that, but the devil's in the details. Marky Microwave's position is we think we can support a lot of this and we're definitely willing to, but I, it's very early days where a lot of things change. There's, there's a lot of like maybe fog of war. It's not quite clear who's going to win. And I don't even think they always know what they want. And certainly in terms of connecting the uh, suppliers and system integrators, uh, hopefully this is an area where QEDC can continue to help and provide greater clarity. Yeah, you guys have a, a brutally difficult job. <laughs> it's hurting cats, that's for sure. Oh, we're here to help. Chris, and you and Marky begin to develop new products. Where do you look for the R&D funding or the capital investment that are needed to overcome the engineering costs as well as the opportunity costs of going into new products? We're established, so it's all self-funded. The company is solely owned by the family. We have no external shareholders. We exercise complete monopolistic power to decide what we do, which is an amazing scenario. I'm, I'm extremely lucky with that because I don't have to answer to a board of directors that's going to mess with me. I don't have an investor who is looking to pull their money out or cash in. So those are very complicated problems that real CEOs actually have to navigate. So I think that it's all self-funded for us. And that means that we, in a way, I think it makes us actually more careful because it's your own money. It's it's either money you spend on on reinvesting in the company or it's money that you would technically you would distribute it to shareholders. And it also means that if you make a bad bet, you feel it more because you think to yourself, wow, what was I thinking? <laughs> and I've, I've got a couple of those for sure. On balance, do you find that uh, makes you more cautious or more inclined to invest in the long term? It depends on which era of market you're talking about, actually. We don't look at like R&D investment as a budget. I don't. We don't go into a year saying, okay, here's X amount of dollars that we can, and what are we going to spend X amount of dollars on? It's actually, what are the ideas we have and do they deserve funding? Yeah. I played two roles, right? I run the design and I come up with the product strategy, but I also pay for it as the chairman. I look at myself more as like a venture capitalist or something like that, where I'm saying, okay, uh, that project would take half a million dollars. Is it worth it? If I was just a pure investor and somebody came to me with that idea, would I give you that money to do it? And I do have to try to separate out the fact that it's me doing it versus a generic CTO. It's a tricky thing. I, it probably makes me more cautious than more reckless. But at the same time, over the last four years, Marky has made significant reinvestment in our R&D pipeline. If you took the last three years of our R&D combined with the previous 30 years, we well spent more money on R&D in the last three or four years than ever before. And the reason was that up until 20, basically up until COVID started, 90 plus percent of our revenue came from products that my dad and myself designed personally. And the management team looked at that and they said, huh, that's a problem. You probably should diversify beyond the marquee male engineer in the company. That's a dangerous uh, position to be in for the company. And, and again, it's like I have this weird dissociative thing where it's, I have to act as if I'm not also the same person who spends the money. So we've been spending a lot of money to expand because we see an opportunity that I get. And that's the point maybe I'm trying to make here. There is an opportunity for us. And if I was going to spend that money internally, 
or go and invest in a mutual fund? What would have been a better decision? It depends on how you view the upside of reinvesting in our R&D pipeline. And so I, I'm very bullish on it. I, I think that we're doing the right thing, but it takes a lot of time and you have to be patient. That's for sure. You clearly wear several hats as you're leading a growing private company. Could you share some key lessons you've learned as you've been growing the business over the past 15 years? Yeah, there are a lot of things I would tell people. So the advice depends on how big you are. So if you're small versus if you're like getting bigger, I guess the two things I've done that I think many people don't go through. And so it makes it a bit of a unique experience is first of all, not a lot of people have taken their companies into a second generation. And that by itself is always a very critical pivot point for a company in their lifespan, father to son or mother to multiple children. The family dynamic and the complexity that creates is tremendously difficult. And if I were to give any advice on that, it's there will always be weird things about working with your parents. That's for sure. The advice I would give, especially to somebody who really believes that they can help transform the company is work very hard on two things. Understand what made your company successful in the first place. Don't take it for granted and learn about it. Like truly learn. In my case, why did my dad make these choices the way he did? And look at it as, let's say, pragmatically as possible. Don't cast judgment on it because my dad's this way. And no, he did that for a reason. The other thing is I would say, and in my case, I'm very proud of this fact. I was extremely paranoid that we would lose the business. I was extremely paranoid that what my dad's Eero technology was offering would become obsolete. And I spent my first seven years here aggressively learning about the problem. And so it was a twofold thing. So in the, in, on the one hand, I was learning about what made the original version of Marky great. Learning about why would, when I go to a, a conference, why would so many people come up to me and say, but your dad really helped me a lot. And some people, some people had nasty things to say, but that's also normal. But a lot of people would say, God, your dad was such a great guy. What a great engineer. He helped me out. He, he bailed me out of a problem I had. Uh, we couldn't ship a program. And I called your dad up and three days later, I had a part in my hand. So that really made me realize, okay, there was something unique going on. So for people who are dealing with that, don't take what your family did for granted. I think a lot of people think they're just going to magically make it better, but also don't assume that it's going to be the same. The other thing that I guess I've experienced, and I'm still going through it, but you have, at some point, if you keep growing, like you go from 40 to 50 to 100 to like 200 people, and that's where we're at right now is going towards 200, you have no choice but to divest your responsibilities and you have to pick what you're going to do. And I don't always do this well, but at one point I was like doing the R&D and the design work and running operations and sometimes even doing my own HR, right? <laughs> I had to do my own HR investigation at one point. I'm like sitting there over a weekend on Google reading about the legal way of doing it. <laughs> it's like, that was not a, a pleasant experience. In order to transition from small to medium, you're going to give up hats. And the best thing you can do is make sure that you choose the leadership team that you're going to work with to do that, which is a lot easier said than done, but choose carefully. Uh, you hear this a lot, actually, with, I've heard this with startup, like startup podcasts and advice that venture capitalists tend to give to their startup founders, which is your first few hires are critical. 
And there's a story, I think Airbnb or something that took forever to hire their fourth person. And that was the best decision I made was to wait. And I would say the same thing about if you're, let's say the president of a 40 person company and you think you're going to get to 80 and you have to bring in a VP of something, choose carefully. And I would say, take it slow because trust is the number one aspect of this. It's not even skill anymore. It's purely trust. Is this person going to tell me the truth, but also be loyal at the same time? Are they going to bail on me after a year because we're going through a difficult time? Because certainly turnover is one of the worst things that a startup has to deal with. And losing people is the worst momentum killer I can think of. Chris, you've shared a great perspective on your management style, on the corporate legacy, and going through leadership transition. I'd like to pivot a little bit to the broader marketplace. What are your strategies for establishing a strong market position, and how does Marky differentiate itself from its competitors? Yeah, so I basically steal the idea from a book written by Eric Schmidt from Google. The book's called How Google Works. And he talks about all the different products and services in one of the chapters. And he basically says that when they looked back on all the, the most successful Google products, they always looked for, what would we call it, a key technical insight. I don't even know if it had to be technical in nature. They always discovered uh, some key insight that other people didn't notice. Sometimes I suppose that is truly a technical thing. Let's say you invent a new way of doing something. But oftentimes I think it was associated with like an observation, a key insight or observation made about like customer behavior that could turn into a, a better product or service. I think the quintessential one was like the idea of page ranking, where it was like back in, in the days of early search, the way that ads were, you know, created on a search tool were, were based on maximizing their revenue. And I think the insight that Larry Page made was that you don't optimize for revenue, you optimize for relevancy. And that's how the whole page rank system came up. I didn't realize at the time, it's, it's not page rank as in web page, it's, it's page like Larry Page, <laughs> which was really funny to me at the time. I was like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. So that was a key technical insight that they understood about the broader market, which if people are going to use your search, they don't care how much money you make, they want their search term to be right. And I think about that all the time when it comes to our own products. So everything that we've been successful at that do well and are, let's say, in the upper distribution of our revenue share, all of those products have some kind, typically it's a technical trick, something about an insight that either my dad made a long time ago about how a mixer works better or a design methodology that other people aren't using that allows us to design, let's say, faster or more accurately for a first pass success. So core IP capability, let's say. But then there's a lot of times where it's, you just notice that multiple customers are asking the same thing. And you say, why are they all asking the same thing? And then you dig a little deeper and you say, oh, okay, there's a shift in, let's say, a system architecture. There's a trend here. And if I capitalize on the trend, that observation, then that turns into a very compelling product. Because in the end, you have to have a compelling product. My dad liked to say, people are parting with their money. So you have to convince them to part with their money. And, and the only way they'll do that is if they think what they're getting in return is of equal value. That's how you develop product is you say, what is my technical insight? What is my key insight that other people haven't made? Because if other people have made that insight, you're probably behind. And that's a big problem. 
Can you share a bit about your approach to pricing new products on the market? So the pricing of a product is whatever people are willing to pay. <laughs> that was an early lesson that I, I remember. I was in I was in Florida at like a used bookstore, and I bought this book called The Price of Everything. I think that's what it's called. And the first page, it was something like the correct price. It's never based on cost. It's on what the market is willing to pay. And then there was like a hundred other pages that I didn't read because that's what pricing is. And it's just curious, as you were describing the introduction of new products, how you think not only about the technical side, about that market aspect of the product. So that comes down to, let's say, decision-making regarding what you should work on. So whenever you work on something, whenever you choose to invest in, if I'm giving the money to the CTO to work on something, you you look at it in terms of the, the technical insight, how powerful is that insight? You look at it in terms of what your moat will be, meaning how hard would it be for a competitor to infringe on your space? How long it would take them, for example, is a good metric. You look at whether you have to develop a lot of ancillary capabilities that you don't currently have. That was a big one for us, let's say seven or eight years ago, when we realized that we really wanted to get into amplifiers. We had never done amplifiers ourselves. We started from literally zero which meant that we didn't have a good insight into reliability. We didn't understand the modeling because when you get PDKs of, if you want to go make a, a gallium arsenide mimic amplifier from the foundry that you like, their PDKs are not going to work well, which will be shocking to your silicon designers who listen to this because silicon PDKs are essentially perfect and RF PDKs are not. And you end up spending an inordinate amount of money on the basic infrastructure if you want to do amplifiers. So in our case, the early stages were a huge investment of resources. Now that we have that under our belt and we know how to do the design flow properly, and we know how to do the reliability testing properly, and we know how to design for reliability, we can turn the flywheel faster. So the barrier to entry to do a derivative of an amplifier is much faster. And that's critical. And then, of course, there's the market dynamic. So that's where the pricing thing comes in play. Can we sell it? Do people want it? What would a price be that somebody would be willing to pay? And then you try to back calculate it to some extent. Although, if you couldn't tell already, I'm much more of a bottoms up innovator. I'm not a tops down guy. I don't look at the size of a market or I don't look at opportunities in the abstract. I definitely look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. We're lucky in a way, though, because the pricing is is more or less understood in our market. The market's mature. So you just go on DigiKey and you say, oh, what's ADI sell that thing for? <laughs> and there's your price. <laughs> we just piggyback on all of ADI's hard work. <laughs> so Chris, you operate a company that designs and manufactures in California. How do you navigate the regulatory environment at the state and federal level and what keeps you up at night? So California is not really the regulatory problem for us because um deal with chemicals or we don't have our own foundry. If we did, California would be a, a nightmare, I think, which is why I think you don't see a lot of fabs anymore in, in Santa Clara County. The regulations that we experience are much more surrounding the fact that we do a tremendous amount of work for aerospace and defense customers. You're dealing more with USDOD 
flow down requirements and, and expectations. For example, we're going through NIST certification, which is associated with IT security. And it's a beast. We're a much more scaled company than we ever were. I'm shocked. We This would have absolutely destroyed our ability to do anything. To the point where customers are saying to us, we're getting like threatening letters, like we cannot buy from you unless you do this. You pass this NIST level requirement. And we are spending a lot of time and money on it. And it's still not done. And we're 150 plus people. And we have dedicated personnel who almost all they do all day is this. I can't imagine what it would have been like when we were at 30 or 40 people. So there's a phrase that I always think about when I think about these things, and it's regulations are a subsidy for the rich. And it's absolutely true in this case. The barrier to entry, if you want to play in the market for aerospace defense and that kind of thing, is high. And I'm very lucky that I walked into a company that was selling to those companies already. But they were very clear with me when I started, actually, that because we were underscaled and because we often would refuse to, let's say, play by all the rules that they were imposing, that we were kneecapping ourselves in the amount of business we could do with them. So a design engineer at a, let's say, a defense prime would say, hey, I wish I could use your thing. I can't use your thing. I say, why? You're not in this like approved whatever list where we do the audits and all these things. I'm like, wow. So today Marky does that, but it took us 15 years <laughs> to get there. So it's hard. I, let me ask you this, because I haven't been following. Are there quantum regulations like that at this point, or is it still the wild west? A bit of a mix. Yes, quantum is a sum of enabling technologies like RF and photonics, and some of the advanced capabilities in those areas are, for example, subject to export control. The um, labor and regulations around uh, movement of skilled individuals, in particular, are also a challenge that the industry shares. But QEDC is helping our members to navigate this space. Do you, do you mean non-U.S. persons who are getting their PhDs? Is that the... Who may study in the U.S. and then yeah. want to work in the U.S., but right. find it difficult particularly to find sponsorship at smaller companies to engage in the sector. The issue is the green card system is a nightmare and absolutely needs to be addressed. I don't see it being addressed anytime soon. Honestly, it's appalling to me that we have this tremendous talent pool that comes to the U.S. to study, especially graduate programs. And I, I feel this person because I got personally burned about this multiple times now where we go ahead and we sponsor the employee and we get them in the green card queue. And then for various reasons, they end up going home. What I find truly ironic about that is that we're funding graduate programs. Typically, at least in, in my field, it's often through a DARPA program of some kind. These are non-U.S. persons who are being trained at the highest levels at these amazing universities and under these brilliant professors. And then we don't have them integrate into the U.S. workforce. I don't understand that. And it doesn't seem to be a high priority. I think it's a complex political argument, so I'm not going to go there. But boy, as, a, as somebody who likes to hire brilliant people, you pull your hair out because you say, wow, like this person would be an amazing addition to the technical framework of our country. And um, they should be fast-tracked as far as I can tell. Absolutely. Chris, I do feel like several of our listeners, particularly uh, in the quantum industry, may 
recognize your background in electrical engineering and photonics and see themselves in this. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs or business people making that jump from technology to business? I don't know. <laughs> I had the luxury of watching my dad do it. And he was very old school about this. My dad was a very simple guy, or is a simple guy. He's still around. He's a simple guy. He, I do a thing for you, you pay me, and we keep doing commerce together. And I guess in a way, business is that simple. I think that because I don't have to navigate the funding aspect of this, I'm actually undersized on that. I can't help somebody when it comes to like, how would I deal with my investors on a particular issue? So my PhD was in, in photonics. When I came into the company, I, I couldn't use the tools needed to do RF design. I barely understood what S parameters were. So what I would say is that the most important asset you have is learning how to learn. Like when you have nobody to teach you. And that could be business. That could be like a new field. I've always looked at the fact that I'm a little bit of an alien. I wasn't born here. and I wasn't born in RF, although I guess my dad was an RF guy. My creation was in photonics, really. And so when I came into RF, I looked at the problems differently. I really did. And I, to this day, I think about them differently. I barely could tell you how a transistor works. Like I would fail if I did a technical interview. But that forced me to develop, let's say, like other muscles. And uh, you hear this a lot. There's a, a famous, um, I guess he's a private equity guy. I think his name's Guy Hands. And I read his, his autobiography and he had dyslexia, really bad dyslexia. And he talks about that a lot, about like how hard it was, but also how it forced him to look at and it analyzed complex problems differently. And I think that if you're a technical person getting into business, you have an advantage and that advantage, if you're properly trained, is problem solving. Technical problem solving is what business is. The difference might be that business is far more conflated by the human element, which some of us engineers have a hard time with, including myself, where, what is it, the Adam Smith rational actor thing, the humans are not rational. <laughs> and you're going to be dealing with HR things one day and just get used to it, <laughs> would be my advice. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners who've been there, done that. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.